Welcome to another edition of the official Jets podcast, the draft podcast presented by Pepsi. We got a great episode in store. Former GM of the New York Jets, Mike Tannenbaum, does work for ESPN. He has his own thing, the 33rd team. Mm -hmm. He was great. Yeah, he's fantastic. And he did a very good job as GM in the New York Jets. I think his run here overall, 16 years with the Jets, seven years as GM. Remember the last time the Jets were in the playoffs, 2009-2010, they came a fraction away from actually going to the Super Bowl in Dallas when we're not able to complete that comeback against the Pittsburgh Steelers. But that was a hell of a team, that 2010 team, who took down Peyton Manning in his place, mm -hmm. then Tom Brady in his place. And I thought it was going to be a historical run. Well, I, I think a lot of Jets fans were hoping that it would be historical. Yeah. And that team was a lot of fun to watch, too. Brian Baldinger just put out a breakdown of the 09 Jets. Oh, really? Focusing on the offensive line, Thomas Jones, Sean Green, Leon Washington, who, of course, is now back in the building as an assistant special teams coach. And, you know, it's fascinating to see how good that team was. And I think Mike offered great perspective of bringing in a rookie quarterback, which a lot of people are expecting the Jets to do in just a couple of weeks here in April's draft. Well, it's happening. Even Joe Douglas said it's a yeah, fair all assessment. Right. All right, fine. <laughs> it's happening. So anyway, um, Mike has great insight because he's been in the war room. Yeah. We talked about a lot of things. You know, when do you discuss trading up and what types of players do you want to surround your rookie quarterback with? And he, he was great, really. And, you know, I don't want to spoil anything. So with that being said, let's hear from Mike Tannenbaum. I heard you on the radio the other day. You said that Zach Wilson, you believe, is the right pick for the Jets at two. Can you elaborate on why you believe that and what does Zach Wilson now bring to the table and what you could expect from him as a rookie? I like him a lot. I think he makes a lot of throws that you see traditionally from the pocket. Um, but I think what really separates him is his ability to make plays outside the pocket. And I think his accuracy down the field is really something that is unusual. And I think when you look at the characteristics of these top five quarterbacks, what separates him in my mind to clear, clearly make him the second best quarterback is that downfield accuracy. Do you think it's clear cut for the Jets right now that he is the guy at number two? Because uh, this quarterback class appears pretty talented at the top. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't know, but um, it certainly seems that way. And uh, for me, again, I think it's Trevor Lawrence draw a line, Zach Wilson draw a line, and then I think it's a really interesting conversation amongst the next three. And then after that, I think there's a big line to see who the sixth best quarterback is in this draft. You know, with the Jets having five picks in the first three rounds and a lot of people anticipate Joe Douglas to add either playmakers or protection for Zach Wilson, assuming he's the number two overall pick. In your opinion, Mike, what is the more important play there if the Jets were to add, you know, if they had a choice of a playmaker or a protector at 23 and 34 and so on? Yeah, I think it's offensive line, offensive line, and offensive line after that. Because <laughs> if you can't protect them, nothing else matters. And when I had the privilege of being the Jets GM, my first draft was 06, and our first two picks were DeBrickashaw Ferguson and Nick Mangold. And they were the foundation for a lot of great teams that we had. And a lot of that was in the formative years of my career. I just saw in, in 2005, we had lost two quarterbacks in seven snaps between Chad Pennington and Jay Fiedler. And when I was promoted to GM, I just 
we, there were some other really good players in that draft, Vernon Davis, Randy Bush. And my point was very simple, like, which is if you can't protect your quarterback, nothing else matters. You can't win on the road. You can't handle crowd noise. You can't run the ball when they know you're going to run it. So unless your offensive line is fortified, everything else really doesn't matter. You could run 4-2, 4-1 on the outside. But if your quarterback can't step up in a firm pocket, if they can't move people off the ball when you need a yard or two, it, it's really, really hard to win consistently in our league. You, you moved up a couple times in 2009, of course, to draft Mark Sanchez. What changes for the entire organization when you take a quarterback in the top five? Yeah, you know, and, and we'll see. Obviously, presumptively, it'll be Zach Wilson for the Jets. And I think what Joe Douglas would be doing there was similar to what we did in 09, which is, you know, you tie a head coach and a quarterback together. In our case, it was Rex Ryan and Mark Sanchez. And, you know, we were fortunate to have success early on with them. And, you know, I think from a front office ownership standpoint is, you know, if you could tie a head coach and a quarterback together, much the way Robert Sala, and again, assuming it's going to be Zach Wilson, you know, you want them to grow together and, and that's going to be, you know, the face of your franchise. So um, when you can accomplish that and they're both rookies at the same time, I think that's great because they're going to, grow together. They're going to make mistakes together. They're going to fumble at a press conference together. There's a lot that they'll go through together. And ultimately that just brings them closer together. Um, and that's really what you want. Um, there's a lot of things that happen, especially when you have these jobs in New York, it's, it's going to be times 10 when it's good. It's going to be really good. You know, when you lose a game or miss a timeout or whatever it may be, it's going to be really bad. And those scars and life experiences, unless you actually live it, it's really hard to explain, but to be able to have a, a partner in a meaningful way that's, you know, in sort of like the same place in your career it is meaningful and, and, in my opinion, ultimately productive. How unique is this place, New York, in this organization? Because when you took Sanchez, of course, he was coming out of USC and you're under the spotlight at USC, but it's different coming to New York. If the Jets do indeed take Wilson, Here's a kid who grew up in Utah, and he's coming to the bright lights of the big city. Yeah, New York's not for everybody. Uh, I was born there, grew up in Boston, and, you know, I'm a Northeast person through and through. And I guess it was just something that I was used to and expected. But, you know, when you speak to people around the league, um, some people love New York. They embrace it. They, couldn't, they love to stay there. They love the Northeast. And for others, it's just not for them. So there is, you know, Eric, it's a really good point. You just don't know how that's going to go and um, you know, where the facility is and being in that part of the country in Morris County, like there's a lot more options than people perceive it to be. Um, but there's no doubt like Zach Wilson coming from Provo, Utah to New York city is going to be a big, big difference. What kind of challenges do you think that the front office had going through not only evaluating quarterbacks, but every position, not being able to sit down and talk to prospects as opposed to what it's been like, this draft process where it's mostly through Zoom or solely through Zoom, except for maybe an in-person hello at certain pro days. Yeah, everyone's dealing with that. When you speak to people around the league, it's just, it's difficult. And, you know, you hear some people talk about, you know, the same pick next year is more valuable than the same pick this year for that same reason. So it's just different and uh, you, you have to make the best of it. And um, everyone's dealing with the same challenges. You know, for me, part of the, that that's part of the process. I, I love, sitting down just hearing people's stories and hearing their dreams and you know their insecurities and their fears and you know what they're trying to accomplish and who they're trying to accomplish it for and 
you're certainly getting some of that through the Zooms, it, but it's just not the same. Um, you just do the best you can. I want to ask you about the trade route. In seven seasons as GM of the Jets, you made 18 trades that dealt away 28 draft choices and eight players. On the other side of the coin, you acquired 14 draft choices and five players. What did you enjoy most about that um, direction in order that you used to help your team? Jeez, I can't believe you made some intern do all that research, Eric. I don't know how those <laughs> trades work out, you know. Yeah, a, a lot of those trades did work out. Yeah, some of them didn't, though. You know, th those are the ones that uh, you'll probably keep, up, uh, you know, up at night. I know for me, like, look, I was raised in this business by a couple of Hall of Famers and Coach Parcells and Belichick, and, and if I took one thing from them, it was, it was a mindset, which was scour, just scour every day. You know, in 90, 1998, Vinny Testaverde gets cut by the Baltimore Ravens in June. And we have a young quarterback in Glenn Foley that we really like. And Coach Parcells felt like, hey, you know, Vinny Testaverde may give us a better chance to win or let's add him. We go to the AFC Championship game that year with Vinny Testaverde. So it was really just more of a mindset. Hey, let's go get, you know, uh, a practice squad player. You, you never know where it's going to lead to. You know, it's, it's like we signed a guy one time, Austin Howard, a former tight end, sign off for practice squad because our pro personnel department really liked them. And those are things like you're as proud of as much as training for Darrell Revis or David Howard, uh, excuse me, David Harris. It just, it's a mindset of just always trying to get better. And when do those opportunities come along? And as it relates to draft day trades, you just, you never know um, what's going to happen. Look in Miami, you know, we're sitting there. The number one player in our board in 2016 was Laramie Tunsil. We had a very good left tackle in uh, a guy named Brandon Albert, and you guys saw what happened. You know, Larry McCutsell was a good person. There was a video out, and we got what we felt was the best player in the draft in 2016 with the 13th pick. So you just never know. And uh, draft day trades, it's fun. It's exciting. It's nerve-wracking. And you sit there with your head coach, your owner, um, and sometimes you have to make decisions really, really fast. What about the decision looking back on it? Because I know a lot of people are hoping that Carl Lawson provides that kind of speed and explosiveness off the edge that John Abraham did. What went into the thinking there of you getting rid of an edge rusher, but on the turn you get a guy who is one of the franchise's top centers. He becomes one of the top centers in the national football league, Nick Mangle. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that Eric, because uh, one of the things that's a lot of fun about what I do now is, we're on get up and we're trying to figure out we're in a production meeting and we're kind of spitballing ideas about, well, you know, could Sam Darnold wind up in Seattle and, you know, how does Russell Wilson get to Chicago? And I'm like, you just do a three-way trade. And they're like, ah, oh, you can't do a three-way trade. I'm like, well, I actually did one. And that was something that um, I was really proud of. You know, John Abraham was a guy we just felt like we couldn't extend at the time. And, Atlanta wanted him badly, and we weren't going to do it without a first-round pick, so they got Denver involved to their credit, and we did a three-way trade. And it doesn't happen often, but that was a win-win. I think everyone benefited from that. And, you know, for us, there was three players um, that we were looking at um, at 29, and it, it was just really interesting. It was Marseille's Lewis, D'Angelo Williams, and Nick Mangold. I'll never forget this. So they go right before Nick um, – we were very happy that Nick was there. We take him at 29 and we turn the card and I was sort of like relieved 
And then I'm thinking to myself, like, gosh, like, we just took two offensive linemen in the first round. Like, I can't imagine people are going to be excited about that. And the phone <laughs> rings, and it's uh, Ozzy Newsom. And Ozzy's like, I just want you to know you're the luckiest guy in the NFL right now. I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? He said at 13, it was going to be Nick Mangold or Haloti Nada. And it was like 51% Haloti Nada, 49% Nick Mangold. He's like, it was a coin toss in our room. He's like, there's no way you can explain how Nick Mangold could be 49% almost gone at 13 and then be available at 29. And that's what happens on draft day. Like, if, we're, if the three of us are having this conversation a month from now, I promise you, each one of us would be saying, like, wow, I can't believe that happened. And, you know, I've just lived it a couple of times. Larry Tunsil is obviously an example, but, you know, so was Nick Mangle falling to the bottom of the first. That draft class in 2006, historically good. Yeah, that, that's an amazing story. I think that leads me to my next question in terms of trades. Let's just say hypothetically, obviously we know the Jets have ammunition to move up. I'm looking at the 33rd team's draft prospect rankings. I see the number one interior offensive lineman, Elijah Vera Tucker. If he were to slide out a little bit, you know, maybe he's in the team somewhere. At what point does this become a conversation in a war room? Hey, do we want to move up and get this guy? Not necessarily Vera Tucker, but a player that you think is within reach and you want to go up and get that guy. Yeah, that's a great point. I would be aggressive, you know, Look, Joe Douglas has done a great job of acquiring picks. Look, go use them. I'm a big believer in you know quality over quantity when you're convicted about a guy. And you know, at the Jets, we weren't perfect at it, but you know, again, players like Darrell Rivas, David Harris, those were guys that in our minds like checked every box. And you bring up a guy like Vera Tucker. We were watching him last night and um, it was interesting. Like some people felt like he could play left tackle, others thought he was a guard, but point being is he's gonna be a guy that should be a ten year player, very good athlete strong, good lower body flexibility. And if I'm the Jets, and that's been, let's be candid, an area over the last several years that hasn't been good for them, it's really been a problem. And for them to get to where they're going to want to go, they're going to have to go on the road to Foxborough, Buffalo, Miami, and move some really big defense linemen off the ball. And I think Vera Tucker is one of those guys that ultimately can do that. And if you have to give up a third-round pick to go do it, by all means, because he has – the requisite height, weight, speed. He has great tape. He's a good kid. And that, to me, like, when you can get foundational pieces like a Vera Tucker, and I, I think sometimes this is what happens. You sit there and say, like, well, maybe the value is really a four. But guess what? If you give him a third-round pick and he's a 10-year starter, no, no one's going to care about that. Do you think about it in terms of the Jets' build right now, where they're at? They're starting a new – Joe Douglas has been on the job not even two calendar years. This will be his second draft. Obviously, you just hired Robert Sala. But do you think about it in a long-term perspective as well with these 21 draft picks over the next uh, two years? Because you got the 10 picks this year, but you do have two first-round picks next year, two twos next year. I mean, you're loaded up. You got five picks in the first three rounds. So what does he have to do, Joe, not just – this spring, but over the course of the next couple drafts? Uh, it's fortifying the lines. I just believe in that. I've seen it. You see the teams that win consistently. We can go back to the Super Bowl. You know, you think about guys like McCole Hardman and Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, all the firepower that Kansas City has. They were decimated on the offensive line, and look, we saw what happened. So until you fortify both lines and can rush the passer with four players, like – if you look at what Robert Sala came from in San Francisco, and I've worked with Chris Carrick, 
the uh, defensive line coach in San Francisco, who's fantastic. They were able to get there with four. Now, they had great depth on their D-line. It allowed them to move on from DeForest Buckner. They take Javon Kinlaw to replace him. They didn't hit on Solomon Thomas, but the mindset was there. You could see how they attacked the lines. Um, obviously, they re-signed Trent Williams. They acquired Alex Back. You know, that's, to me, the mindset, Eric. You know, to me, it's not about having nine picks next year, 11 picks next year. Look, having multiple first-round picks is great, but I would be attacking both lines because that is your foundation. Mike, is there a certain list of qualities that certain GMs or you particular look through or look for in the mid-rounds? I mean, I'm looking at the fourth round in particular during your time with the Jets, not necessarily as just GM. Talk about guys like Brad Smith, Leon Washington, Kerry Rhodes, all mid-round picks, all good players for the Jets. Are there certain qualities that you look for when you hit those mid-rounds? Yeah, all those good picks were my ideas, just so we could set the uh, record straight. Here. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I would say, you know, something that Coach Parcells instilled in me, and we could talk about any of those players, but starting with someone like Brad Smith, they need a quality to really, like, start with. And, you, and Brad, there was a gazillion of them. We were so fortunate to get him as a human being, as a player. I mean, there's no finer person that you could meet than Brad Smith, but – he had incredible production. He was a really good athlete with the ball in his hands. And we felt like there were a lot of jobs he could do. He had third and fourth down value for us. But it starts with an attribute. It could be quickness. It could be production. It could be size. But there's got to be something that you can build a foundation and a story from that, hey, we take this player in the fourth or fifth round. There is a developmental attribute about them. You traded for Favre. He came in here uh, eight and three at the time that his, he experienced uh, shoulder a uh, shoulder injury, shoulder soreness, and the team was not the same down the stretch. Make the coaching change. Then you draft the quarterback. Let's go back to Sanchez for a second. Oh nine, has a rookie quarterback ever walked into a better historically uh, better historical situation than the way you had set that up, you guys? as far as that roster was concerned with that offensive line, the run game and the defense. Yeah. You know, it's interesting about that. Like, um, you know, I get the privilege of working with guys like Damian Woody and Bart Scott. And you, know, you talk to D Wood and he said, you know, in his opinion, he felt like that 08 team was, you know, our best team, mm. you know, we beat Tennessee, Jeff Fisher jumps out of the helicopter that really pissed off a lot of people. And, uh, you beat them you know, down, down there. Yeah. <laughs> and look, Never know what will happen if Brett didn't get hurt. That's just part of the game. Um, but it did sort of validate, like, our belief that we had a really good team and there was a good foundation there. But it was guys like Damian Woody. Again, it goes back to the line. We felt like we needed a tackle. D. Wood did not play a lot of tackle the year before in Detroit. And I give Bill Callahan a ton of credit. You know, we really studied that one carefully because the market was way more than we wanted to pay. And I was concerned from a GM perspective that, gosh, like – we're extending on a player that really doesn't have a ton of experience to tackle. And to Damien's credit, he played exceptionally well, better than we could have ever expected. Guy is an unbelievable athlete. And, um, you know, to Sanchez's credit, he came in and, you know, took advantage of the opportunity. You know, I'm, you mentioned D Wood. I'm just curious. A, a lot of this time of year, there's a lot of projections in terms of draft prospects. Where will this person play at the next level? If you play tackle, is he going to kick inside and, you know, through all different positions? So in terms of the O-line in particular, how difficult is a positional jump 
from the college level to the pro level. If you have minor experience, let's say if you play tackle, I'm thinking of a guy like Tevin Jenkins started at guard and tackle at Oklahoma State. Just how difficult is that switch? And I know it's a player-by-player determination, but what is that conversation like behind closed doors? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. You know, context is really important. You know, you, you take a projection in the third or fourth round, you know, you can live to fight another day. You take a projection in the first round, like, that's just not smart, and I made some mistakes with that. So, um, you know, Jenkins to me, I like him a lot. I like his play tempo. I think he's going to be a really good professional. Um, but I think where you take projections is consequential. Yeah. How much do you tinker with the big board down the stretch here? We're two weeks out from the draft, or the time this airs is going to be about one week out from the draft. What happens? What are those final stops for you? Um, you, you have critics come in and, and critique everything you do, like my uh, <laughs> my 14-year-old just did. Um, he, he had more concerns about my mock draft than anybody. So, um, <laughs> you know, that to me, that's really like a, a really fun part of the process, guys, is – breaking ties and, and usually it's not ties that ever get to the surface so hey let's take the three wide receivers we have in the fourth round and really try to separate them and um that to me you know i, I really enjoyed those sort of nuances just to be as prepared as possible because i think what sometimes happens is you have four thousand reports on zach wilson i mean we can only talk about his wrist surgery so many times or how he hurt his shoulder or when he drove back from Provo to go work with John Beck. And I mean, there's so much out there about him. It's really a great story in all seriousness. And he worked as a DoorDash driver on Mother's Day because he could get more tips because of the traffic there was on that. I mean, he it's a great story. But the point being is like at some point, like, OK, we got it. Zach Wilson is a great kid. You know his history. Let's spend more time on the lower round picks to make sure that, you know, we're as thorough uh, in that part of the draft, because oftentimes, like that's could be the difference between having great depth or not. Are there any players in this draft that you just like? Like they're they're just your guys, whether that's potential first round talent or fifth round talent. Just a couple guys that you really like for any particular reason. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes we overcomplicate things. So you know, take a guy like Patrick Sertan. Like, in my opinion if we weren't talking about quarterbacks every 10 seconds, it seems like he's a great player. Like I don't see a hole in his game. I think he's a plug and play player and you need a starting corner. You're the Dallas Cowboys. Like go put him in and in 10 years, you'll be happy. Um, I think sometimes like we overcomplicate things. He's a great player. He's a good person. He has great ball skills. He's a great timed athlete. He's been coached by Nick Saban. Like that, those are like, to me, like, I don't think we talk about those sort of like situations enough where like those are the players to me that those are foundational bedrock players at a premium position. Well, quickly, what's the ceiling for Kyle Pitts out of Florida? A lot of people have been talking about him entering this draft, how unique a prospect and playmaker he is. So I'm really fortunate. Um, you know, we started an organization called the 33rd team, which is, a lot of head coaches and GMs, and we spend a lot, uh, a lot of time looking at guys like Kyle Pitts. And it's actually also a great way for us to uh, help others get started. We have really, really smart grad students, and we put together stuff every week. And you know, so we asked that question to candidly. It was we have great defensive coaches, so John Fox, Wade Phillips, Eric Mangini, guys that are really 
experienced in defending pro offenses. And, you know, they, they said, hey, you know, Kyle Pitts, like, to a man was, we're going to count him as a receiver. Like, he's going to have to prove that he could block. And what I mean by that is, even if he's in line with his hand down, a three-point stance, he's going to be covered by a corner or a safety. No one's going to put a linebacker on Kyle Pitts. And at some point, Kyle Pitts is going to have to move somebody off the ball or cut somebody off on the backside uh, in a meaningful way. Like one of the many reasons Rob Gronkowski is a great player, a Hall of Famer, was he was a good blocker. And therefore, you couldn't cover him with a linebacker. And he was going to overwhelm you, you know, in terms of capturing the edge. And I think Pitts is a dynamic player. I like him a lot. But I don't think he's this mismatch that people think he is from a standpoint of, People are going to cover him and defend him like a receiver. And again, like to hear it through the lens of guys like John Fox and Coach Mangini and Wade Phillips, like, don't get me wrong. I think he's a great player, but I think there's going to be answers for him at our level. Now, if you sit there and cover two and let him right, run right down the middle, yeah, he's going to put up some real tremendous highlight plays. But for him to be a great pro, at some point, he's going to have to make a block as a tight end. They're jumping back and forth here, and you've been really gracious with your time. We appreciate you, Mike. Your favorite story as far as you moving up to get to Raul Rivas. When did you know that, hey, this guy was not just good, he's ridiculously special. And um, can you just talk about the process of the trade itself? Yeah. So, um, you know, a guy that I had the privilege of working with for a long time, Terry Bradway. Terry was actually at Darrell's Pro Day, and going back a number of years, Darrell played at Pitt. It was the old Big East. And that year, there just weren't very good receivers in the Big East. So Darrell was a late declaring junior. So there just wasn't a lot of information on him, period. And then when you watch the tape, you just couldn't see him playing against great competition. And Terry called me from the airport in Pittsburgh after Darrell's workout. He's like, Mike, I'm just telling you. And we needed a corner desperately. And Aaron Ross from Texas, Leon Hall were the other two corners. We had a first round pick and we felt like we had to come out of this with one of the, those three players. And he's like, I'm just telling you this workout was phenomenal. We watched tape of it. And Darrell was the thing that made Darrell really special guys was people don't realize how strong he was. But in addition he had this unbelievable workout. His change of direction was crazy. So now you marry strength and quickness, and now you have a Hall of Famer, obviously. And we made what I was able to do on that trade was the night before, a um, good friend of mine, GM of the then Panthers, Marty Herney, who's now with Washington, I reached an agreement in principle with him for us to move up. Um, it was for a second, I think like a fourth round pick. And it was, I think it was 11 spots. And Basically, I'm like, Mario, we're coming up for one player, and I'm just telling you, like, right now, like, if we're coming up, here's exactly what I can do. Do not ask me for more on the clock. This is it. He's like, we'll make a deal, but on the clock, don't expect to do it for less than that. I'm like, no, we've done 100 deals. We have a deal. It's one player. If it's done, if he's there, they want to move back. We want to move up. So as soon as the 13th pick was turned in, I knew Revis was a Jet because – I could trust Marty. The compensation was locked in, and it was like, you know, it was much harder to trade for Sanchez than it was for Revis for for reasons that has to do with league rules that we could talk about. But the the Revis thing was really locked in the night before. All right, Mike. As EA said, 
You've been so gracious with your time. I have one final question for you. Going back to your mock draft, you have Zach Wilson at two. We've talked about the importance of offensive line. You have the Jets taking Zayvon Collins at 23. Why is he the right pick for the Jets at 23? And could you give us a name potentially that you like for the Jets at 34? Yeah. So look, with Collins, I love his length. I love his versatility. Um, he's a good athlete. He's a little bit longer. You know, there's a couple other edge rushers I like, Aziz Ajulari from Georgia. I, I kind of like those athletic types. I think Quiddy Pay from Michigan is a great up-the-field pass rusher. I, I just think Collins and Ojolari are those three. Those two guys, to me, have much better movement space. I think I, I'm really interested to see how Coach Sala evolves this defense. I, I think Collins is a, a good fit. And, again, I like a little bit of a longer guy there. You know, 34, look, I think at some point the Jets could use a back – and, you know, those guys are kind of clumped up there, like Najee Harris. I don't know if, like, Etienne makes it there, but, like, Travis Etienne from Clemson, what I love about his game, guys, is he's a great – not good, he's a great pass receiver. So what I like about that is, like, we got to get Zach Wilson off to a good start if I'm the Jets. Just get him the long handoffs. Like, just check the ball down. Let Etienne make plays in space. And I think if they could come out with either, like, Javante Williams from North Carolina – Najee Harris from Alabama or Etienne from Clemson, you know, and they're one of those players are there at the top of the second. I think that would be, again, through the lens of putting this quarterback in the best position possible to be successful would be something to consider. You led this franchise to AFC championship game appearances after the 2009 and 2010 seasons. We talked a little bit about your history today, as far as putting a team together just from your view, watching it from afar, because you're very much involved with football, with ESPN and the 33rd team, uh, do you like the way Joe has gone about trying to construct this thing? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't, you know, I don't think you could really quibble much with what he's done. You know, you certainly could have the discussion of, hey, should we hold on to Sam Darnold and pair him with Zach Wilson? You, you can certainly say, hey. We're not going to play Zach Wilson in year one, much the way Mahomes did in, or going back a while, Chad Pennington sat for two years behind Vinny Testaverde, and that really worked out well. It just seems like in this day and age, rookie quarterbacks are just being put on the field. You know, we saw that with Joe Burrow, obviously with Tua. Justin Herbert played early last year. Um, so, but beyond that, I would just, you know, I know Joe's background, Baltimore, how much he puts value on the lines. I know he's trying to address that to a certain extent with George Fant and some of the other moves last year, but having all those picks is obviously a great place to be. And now it's you know about execution and knowing Joe, I'm sure they're going to be very well prepared. Like I said, fascinating interview, great insight. Was there anything that stood out to you in particular? Build it up front. I, I mean, and that's something that we're talking about throughout this draft process is, how do you handle using the 10 picks? Um, what areas do you have to target? Where are your needs? You bring in a young quarterback, which the Jets are doing, you got to build it up front. And that's something that Joe Douglas has continued to stress since day one of him getting here. His first pick was Makai Becton, of course. And then I think back to 2009. Mike moved up a couple times in order to get Mark Sanchez. Mm -hmm. Mark Sanchez walked into a historically good situation because of what Tannenbaum had done building that right. roster to get to that point. That 06 draft greens, 
Brickshaw Ferguson. The glasses are coming on. Round one, number four overall. Overall, excuse me. Might just discuss the trade, the Mangold Abraham right. trade. He gets back in the first round, number 29 overall. He got Eric Smith in the third round, Brad Smith in the fourth round, Leon Washington in the fourth round, Drew Coleman in the sixth round, who was a very good uh, reserve in the defensive backfield. But what he did with that young quarterback, I, I can't point to a rookie quarterback who ever walked into a better situation. Well, so I, I think that it's a great point, and – from hearing Mike talk about the 08 team, it seemed like a lot of the pieces were in place. This, oh, is, a, this is a different situation where Joe yes. and Coach Sala are building this up, but we know that Joe's emphasis has always been on the offensive line. And maybe this is wrong of me to think, but it just feels like there's an offensive lineman or two who will be a New York Jet at the end of the April 29th to May 1st draft because when you look at what the Jets did in free agency, they signed Dan Feeney. But Joe Douglas consistently talks about the his will to add through the draft, and it just feels like when you marry that up with what we know about his vision of the offensive line, it feels like there's a move to be made there. I agree with that. I think two probably on the low end as far right. as offense alignment here out of these 10 picks. And then you're going to look at your undrafted free agents. You're going to get on the phones and try to sign up some guys and create more competition and depth along the line. But yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think right now you have your foundational piece in Mackay Becton. What a draft pick that was. Uh, Connor McGovern retar- returns in the middle. He has played guard before. If you ever went in the center direction, I'm just saying, uh, right. As far as the draft is concerned, George fan, I think is going to be a good system fit just because they're going to ask these guys to get out and move and take angles. And I think that works to, fans advantage but yeah joe douglas is certainly not done adding to that line and we saw him really fortify i thought the wide receiver position that doesn't mean they're not going to get another receiver here in the draft but bringing in Corey davis and keelan cole uh put you in a better spot heading into the draft yeah it'll be interesting to see how it all breaks down in a couple weeks by the time this posted like you said it might be one week before the NFL draft right around the corner. That's all we have on this episode of the official Jets podcast, the draft podcast presented by Pepsi.